it's Advent season. And so that does mean we're going to take a bit of a break in our Revelation preaching schedule. Um, but it fits really well with what we're talking about in this series. So in Revelation, we're talking about the king who is reigning. Jesus, whose kingdom is going forth and so forth. And now we're pausing from that. And we're talking about, well, the king who is coming. We're looking back. We're, we're feeling the, ang- the angst. The angst. <laughs> For my four friends out there, that's another good foreword. Um, the, the longing, the, the yearning for a king who, who is not yet here yet. The promise of the coming king. And so, uh, if you would, turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel, chapter 7. Uh, and it's also printed in the bulletin for you. 2 Samuel, chapter 7, verses 11 through 16. And if you're able and willing, please stand out of respect as we read the word of God. 2 Samuel, chapter 7, starting in verse 11. So we're going to go, like, start in the middle of verse 11 here. Moreover, the Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the son of man. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, who I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure before me forever. And your throne shall be established forever. It's a true word. The living God gives it to you because he loves you. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, um, we just, we need you. We're coming off of the Thanksgiving season, and for some of us, that was wonderful. For some of us, that was hard. Um, Who knows how we're sitting in this room. But we need you, all of us. And so we pray, Lord, that you would come, that you would speak through your word, that you would kindle in our hearts again uh, a love for you, a longing for you, that you would remind us of everything that we have in our Jesus, and that you would satisfy us in him. Father, would you use these next few minutes to just cause us to fall more in love with our Savior and to be excited about what he's doing here in this world. We thank you for coming, Lord Jesus. We pray again in expectation that you would come again soon. We pray all this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. So we're just going to dive right in. Uh, the three points, because again, we're Presbyterian. You find them in your outline. Uh, it's a king and his kingdom, a king and temple, and a king and a rod. All right, so those are the three points. King and his kingdom, a king and a temple, and king and a rod. Uh, I'm just going to admit up front, this could be a little difficult. Um, just because, you know, we are kind of removed from the idea of kings, and we're kind of removed from the idea of temples. And so, for us, we may not feel belonging. That we, you know, that, that first, like that the people reading uh, this passage or David would have felt when God first made, said these words and made these promises. So the point of this sermon, what we're going to work really hard at, um, is to help you feel that. To help you feel the yearning that, uh, that our need for a king. 
and to realize like God meets all of those longings in our king. Okay, so we're going to dive right in. The king, let's look at the king and his throne. All right, so first of all, we've got to do a little bit of context here for uh, chapter 7 because we're jumping right smack dab in the middle of a book in the middle of a series. So up to this point in the history of God's people, things have been fairly tumultuous. All right, we've had judges who ruled over God's people and enemies came and they would like have their way with God's people and then the judges would throw out uh, the enemies. And then there, there was this king named Saul who ruled for a little while and he brought somewhat stability, uh, but he turned his back on God. And so the monarchy that Israel was hoping for just kind of cratered and crumbled. And now we at last have this man named David. And he establishes God's throne and the ark of God, this, uh, which represents God's presence and so forth, uh, is, is established in this, uh, in, in this tent so God, uh, God's king is reigning in a house, a, a palace, a place of cedar, and God's, God's presence, represented by this ark, is hanging out in a tent. And David's looking at that, and he's like, oh, that doesn't look good. So David desires to build God a house, a temple, a place for the presence of God to stay. It, it's a good desire, but God speaks through his prophet Nathan right here uh, in this passage. And he says, David, not yet. Not yet. And then God turns the thing around. He says, David, you wanted to build me a house, a place for my presence. David, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a house. And I'm going to establish your throne. All right, so that's the context. And then God enters into this covenant. All right, so a covenant, uh, for those of you who hung around Holy Cross for a while, uh, you know that Rick defines it, it's a promised bound relationship. You're entering into a relationship and you make promises. And God is making promises to David. Uh, and, and this covenant is the latest iteration and a promise that God began way back in the beginning. When human beings turned their backs on God and rebelled against him, God entered into a relationship with human beings saying, hey, I'm making this promise to you. I am going to come save you. I'm going to redeem you. And that's called the covenant of grace. And uh, it, it unfolds throughout the history of redemption. Through like, we, we see the covenant of Noah. God makes a covenant with Noah. He says, I'm not going to destroy the world anymore uh, through water or anything like that. Uh, he makes a covenant with Abraham that I will bring blessing and rescue through Abraham's family. He makes a covenant through Moses uh, and gives his law and sets kind of the expectation for a, a perfect law keeper that will come. And now finally he makes this promise to David, this covenant to David. Um, and in verse 12, it's kind of interesting, isn't it? God reminds David who's in, who's in charge. David wanted to build a home for God. And God said, no, David, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to raise up your people, uh, your offspring. And when you lie down, when you are powerless, when you die, I will raise up. I'm in charge, David. The power is in my hands. And the moving forward of this covenant is in my control. And so God's promise to David, this covenant to David is, he says, I will raise up an offspring for you. And that does have a near fulfillment. So um, if you just imagine being David, your predecessor just got toppled from the throne, right? So how do you have any guarantee that your, your family that the line that you have uh, raised up is going to continue on the throne after your death. And God's just saying to David, hey, I promise they will remain. And that's what happened. 
Solomon came and he became king, uh, David's son, and it was a, a, a glorious kingdom, okay? But God promises a forever king, and he promises a forever kingdom. So this points to a, a greater kingdom. It's not just Solomon, it points to something bigger. And that may be a little harder to see, but let's look at the greater kingdom. Here in verse 12, he says, I will raise up for you, or raise up your offspring. The word there literally is seed. And that's not just a guarantee of like, hey, David, your son is going to inherit the throne after you. If you heard the word seed, it, like it, you hear the um, echoes uh, of, of promises made all through the, uh, the Old Testament. So it started in Genesis 3 when God promised Eve, hey, your seed, one who comes from you, will crush the serpent's head, will right the things that have been wrong. And then God made a promise to Abraham saying, hey, Abraham, your seed, through your seed, blessing will come to the nations. And now to David, David, your seed, from you will come a king who rules a forever kingdom. Okay. Like I said, right? It can feel a little distant, a little hard for us to connect with. Here's why this matters. We human beings, we were made for a kingdom. You may not believe that because like, you know, we're Americans. So we're made for democracy and the whole world ought to be a democracy, right? So uh, our, the whole idea of a kingdom just doesn't quite resonate. But think of it this way, okay? Um, in the beginning, God is king. He creates the whole world. And what does he do? He creates human beings to be his stewards, to be his image bearers, to go extending the rule of God, made to image him, to have dominion over his world, to bring flourishing to creation and to other people, to, to sculpt the raw materials of God's good world into these culture-filled centers of beauty and goodness and care and life. And you feel that, don't you? Every time, um, I don't know, <laughs> every time we head to the polls and we, we uh, vote for our, our candidate, we're hoping for that. We want goodness and flourishing. You know, the protests that happened all of last year, wherever you are on the, on, on the um, political spectrum, what people are wanting, what they are longing for, right, is their idea of justice, their idea of flourishing, their idea of human uh, thriving. We all want this because we were made for it. We were made for a kingdom. Instead, we rebelled against God. We set up alternate kingdoms that reflect some of the goodness that was made, like Solomon's kingdom, the king who came after David. It was great. It was glorious. It had gold and like lots of wealth and thriving. And yet, even our best kingdoms are afflicted with the cancer of corruption, exploitation, evil, and ultimately death. And so every great kingdom since the dawn of time has collapsed under the weight of its own sin, of its own corruption. And still we long, right? We long for, for a glorious kingdom, for, for, for a government to spread around the world that, that 
enhances human flourishing, that, that sets up uh, centers of, of beauty and culture, and that's what we were made for. We were made to steward. We were made to be gardeners. We were made for flourishing, to see each other flourish, and to see God's world flourish. So we were made for a kingdom, but we human beings were also made for a king. And that, again, is hard, because, you know, what do we Americans do with kings? Ah, we rebel against them, right? We don't need kings. We all are made to be our own kings. Autonomy. That's, that's the American dream, right? But, I mean, according to the Bible, like, every man is not a king. That would lead to anarchy. We were made to be ruled by a wise, good, powerful protector who seeks the flourishing of the ones he rules. One who frees us from our scramble to fend for ourselves and instead frees us to like to be and do what we were made for. Frees us to steward. Frees us to serve. But, I mean, again, we know this, right? Um, no matter how good uh, the candidate that we vote for is, they're never good enough. They always fail. And ultimately, they die. Like, even if, even if you were to have a, a king whose rule you were satisfied with for like 90% of the time, after 40 years, like David or Solomon, he dies. He's gone. Because we're all sinners. And our leaders are no better than the rest of us. And the consequences of sin are death. So even our best leaders fail us. And most of our leaders are nowhere near the best. So how does God's promised king answer these longings? Well, first, God promised a king, right? And it's just not just any king. It's one who would free us from the sinful corruption that stamps an expiration date on our lives and on our kingdoms. One who would deal fully with human sin. One who would never fail his people. One who would live forever. A king's name... Jesus. So God promises a king. He also promises a king who will rule over his kingdom, freeing God's people from their sin and slavery to themselves, restoring us to God, freeing us uh, to serve instead of scrambling to like protect ourselves and protect our own little kingdoms and trying to rule. And one day, that seed, that King Jesus, he will at last restore all things in his kingdom and make everything right freeing us from corruption and sin and evil and suffering and death. God's promise to David wasn't just about a throne. You know, what started this whole discussion in the first place? The idea of a temple. So let's look at a king and his temple. So, the architect. David, David, so, again, we have to honor David's desire, right? He was living in this big old palace and God's the, the seat of God's authority and that sort of the ark uh, was hanging out in the tent. And D- D- David's like, this isn't appropriate. God should have a palace. God should have a place that is glorious and so forth. A worthy, more permanent space. So why would a temple matter, right? Because we don't do temples today. Not really. Um, so a temple is, it's God's home. So back when they built the tabernacle, uh, back in, uh, when the people of Israel were wandering around in the desert, all of God's people lived in tents. So what did they do? God told them, hey, 
build me a tent. One that, sets, that is set up right smack dab in the middle of y'all. And you know how you would recognize God's tent? Because boy, it was glorious. It had like golden threads woven through it and it was made out of purple and all this sort of stuff. But the point there was that God was living in the midst of his people. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. So it's God's home. It's a place of worship. It's the social center of God's people, the center of like celebration where feasts happened and cleansing. It's a place of reconciliation. This is big. The temple was the place of reconcilia- reconciliation, the place where the broken relationships between God and man were restored. And the broken relationships between human beings were restored. So God's answer to David isn't, nah, David, I don't need a temple. Look, I'm the almighty God. Heaven and earth can't contain me. No, he's like, not yet, David, not you. And David's son would not only inherit God's throne or the throne of, over God's people, but he's also going to build God's house. And what did happen? So yeah, Solomon did. He, he built a glorious temple. It was like the most glorious temple in the Old Testament uh, among God's people, but that temple was destroyed. And God's people, ever after that, never forgot this promise of God that one day a king would come. And with that king would come the restoration of God's temple. Because that's what restoration looks like. God's king setting up God's temple so God can dwell in the midst of his people again. Like he did in Eden. So, that's the king and the architect uh, as the designer of God's temple. So, but this points to an even greater temple, right? What's the big deal about a temple? And this is where I want, like I want to get into our longings here. Um, because this temple wasn't just about Israel and Israel's longings. This temple is about us and our longings. It's a universal longing. See, here's the thing. Way back in the beginning, uh, if you read the Genesis 1 account, uh, we, we kind of miss it. But the way it's set up, it's set up like the decking out of a temple would be. God is creating the world and he's setting up this world in his garden as his temple, a place where he's gonna dwell, a place where his presence is supposed to be. This was God's home where God lived with human beings. God chose to do that. God wanted to live with us, with human beings. And this garden that God sets up and brings Adam and Eve into that garden, that, that idea of that garden was supposed to spread. God's presence, where he dwelt with human beings, was supposed to spread around the globe until you have the whole planet Earth would be like one big Eden. What happened? Right? We rebelled. We said, Lord, we don't want your presence. We'd rather be our own kings. We turned our back on him. We were, because of that, we were removed from God's home. We're rebels in a wasteland. We're orphans without parents. We are longing for a home. Longing for him. You feel that longing, don't you? Something's missing. It's because the one that we were made for, the one we were made to commune with, the setting, the home that we were supposed to have, we turned our back on that. And yet... That wasn't what God was going to have. 
We may have turned our back on him. We may have been exiled from the garden and God left the garden coming, looking for us. That's what the temple always represented. It was a place where God's presence was and where he was inviting human beings, come once again, come and be restored, come and have relationship with me. It's an echo of things the way they were back when God and man lived together in the beginning. Right, so how does, how does God's promised king, how does Jesus answer these longings? All right. Well, first of all, uh, Jesus is God's temple. Uh, so if you read in um, John 1, it says, the word of God came and templed or tabernacled among us. Some of your translations may say dwelt. Uh, but the literal word there is tabernacled. Why is that? Well, because... Jesus is God, right? And so you don't get a clearer picture of how God lived with human beings than to have a man seated at the table with his 12 other human beings and and a woman who would come and wash his feet with her tears and he's lifting her up and, and encouraging her. Like that, you don't get a clearer picture of God living with human beings than Jesus who broke bread with his people and set up the church. Because that's the other thing. Jesus is God's temple, God's presence dwelling among human beings. But Jesus is also the temple builder. So in the New Testament, um, as after Jesus was raised and ascended into heaven, he sends his Holy Spirit. That's a big, that's a big deal. Because God's Holy Spirit now isn't dwelling inside of a tent. And it's not just dwelling inside of Jesus. It's dwelling in you. You, Christian, are God's temple. God has come and is dwelling with his people once again, restoring us to what we should be, restoring us to relationship with God. And so God's presence, again, is spreading around the globe through those who bear the image of God's son, through Christians who cling to Jesus and are made to look more and more like him. And so God's temple builder has brought us back into God's home, has made us God's home, and is using us to make the whole earth God's home as we carry this gospel from little bitty Israel, Palestine, to the corners of the world. All right, so that's the king and the throne. This is the king and the temple. And finally, the promise that God makes to David here, it speaks of a king and a rod. Uh, And if you want, you can add like a a second title to this. You can call it a son and his father, okay? Because a lot of this, uh, the promise here, has to do with father, fatherhood. Um, so God says again, he will be my son. Oh, I will be his father and he will be my son. He reiterates the sonship language all over the place. Uh, and I mean, this isn't uncommon in the ancient Near East. So that's the context where like Israel and Palestine were. Um, kings in that area often claimed to be sons of God, right? It was, it was uh, in some way, it was a way to uh, validate their rule. So think of it this way. Um, in the medieval world, We'd have the divine right of kings. Kings would claim, well, God set me on this throne, and therefore if you oppose me, you're opposing God, right? Uh, And today, uh, we have a different God. Our God is progress. 
Our God is uh, the moving forward of history. And so if, if you're not one of the sons of God, one of those who are helping history progress and standing in the way of, of our, our destiny as human beings, well, you know, you're no good, right? So our political parties will use the same thing. Like, and, and we'll also use God himself to kind of validate uh, our positions and so forth. So it's not unusual. And the kings in, uh, in the ancient Near Eastern world were called sons of God. But God, when God says he will be my son, this isn't just a way of rubber stamping whatever it is David's descendant is going to do, right? Because God's fatherhood looks different. God isn't permissive. He's not just saying, okay, you can use my name and now you can do whatever you want. Instead, God's promise of fatherhood is about shaping his ruler, discipling, being a... Being, um, taking the kind of care that a parent would take with their kid, right? I will be their father. He will be my son. And that's why he talks about the rod. I will discipline him with the rod of men. Um, Because the point there is, okay, it's like, I'm not just going to let him do whatever. He's my son. I'm going to take care of him. I'm going to shape him the same way like any parent would shape their their child when they disobey. Um, And this promise is about dealing with the reality of sin. When he does wrong, I will punish him. And this discipline is meant like as God's loving corrective to his people. Because God knew David's sons were going to sin. You know, that's just how it works. But God's promise to David was, you know what, when they do, I will bring them back. And this promise isn't just about discipline. It's about love. What does he say there at the very end, right? But my steadfast love will not depart from him. This promise is one of grace. Essentially what God's saying is like, look, the sin of your descendants is not going to disqualify them from a kingdom. My love is going to win out. That's my promise to you, David. And that promise actually looks to a greater hope. It's not just about continuing the line of David's rule. There's something more there. Let's think a little bit more about this term, God's son. All right, so again, everything keeps going back to the garden. Back in the beginning, Adam was God's son. You can see that in Luke, uh, in Luke 2, when Luke is describing gene- Jesus' genealogy. He says, uh, this person was the son of this person, this person was the son of this person. He gets to Adam, he says, and Adam, the son of God. Because man was made in the image of God. So like, it's like when I hold my little girls. Uh, actually, if, if I'm honest, when they first came out, I was like, you look nothing like me. You're all smushed and you know, that sort of thing. But as they get older, you look in their face, you're like, hey, I see Anna. Hey, I see me. And especially as they start getting personality things and you're like, oh my goodness, you are my personality. <laughs> they look like me. It's my image. Um, that's the way it was with Adam. God made Adam. And he said, you're made in my image. You're made to reflect me. You're made to look like me. Adam was God's son, and what happened to that God's son? What did God's son do? He betrayed him. He rebelled against God. It's called sin, right? And ever since then, every human being that has been born in Adam's likeness has been born with this original sin. Warped, twisted, 
turned away from God in a state of rebellion against him. We're broken and we need rescue. Something has to be done about our sin because sin is not just the ruiner of kingdoms and kings, it's the ruiner of human beings. It's the defacer of God's image. We need that image restored. Sin kills what was meant to be to meant to be eternal. It's the bringer of death. And so God sends another son. Not just Adam, the first son in whose image we're all made. He sends another son, Jesus, the perfect son. One who wasn't warped with sin. The only human being who was perfect. The only faithful son who didn't disobey and didn't deserve the stripes of men. And this son stood in our place and was punished for our sin. He took the weight of our betrayal on himself and he paid its price. This son was crushed so that we could have the likeness of God remade in us. This son was killed as a rebel so that we could be welcomed as sons and daughters. And God never took his love away from Jesus, right? Like, that steadfast love remained. Jesus rose from the dead so that the house of David and and David's kingdom could actually truly endure forever. I mean, did you notice that? In these verses, forever, 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 forever keeps showing up. That's because that, God was saying, that's how my love is gonna persist. And, And that's what happened. The promised one was freed from death and sin had no more power. It had been paid for and God's love, because God's love was never taken away from Jesus. Now those of us who are made in Jesus' image, those of us who are sons through him, God's love will never be taken away from us. So Jesus is the long-awaited king, God's promised one, the one who establishes God's kingdom, who restores our place as God's stewards, the one who builds God's temple so that God's presence can spread across the earth again the perfect son who deals with sin, taking the discipline on himself that we deserved and restoring us to life and sonship, Jesus is king. All right, that's Jesus, that's the, that's the theology, that's the longing. Here's the application. So what are you gonna do with this king? Because he is king. He's reigning and ruling even now. That's what our whole series in Revelation reminds us. Jesus is king. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God. We say that all the time, right? So what are you gonna do with him? Are you gonna turn from all the ways that we, that, that we use to try to avoid God and his claim on our life? Continuing to be rebels? Or will we turn to Jesus as king? The one who comes to rule us, to free us, to love us. See, the Bible's really clear. The blessings that come from God, from the promise that God made, the covenants of God, whether it's a kingdom for the flourishing of his people, God's presence, his smile, the answer to our brokenness, having God as our father, having God's love, all these promises only come through King Jesus. And without him, all we can look forward to is, well, futility, alienation, frustration, and ultimately, like, the final judgment one day. So this Advent, um, as, we, as we look 
at our king, the coming king, right? As we, as we look back and celebrate his birth and we look forward to when he's going to like remake all things and perfectly set up his kingdom and, and abolish all of his enemies, this advent, as we submit, let, let's us submit ourselves to him, to his kingship, and look to him, the one who is our promised king. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for sending us Jesus. I pray, Lord, that, uh, yeah, Father, where, where does not reign uh, fully in our hearts, where we are striving to hold something back, where we are um, resisting his kingship, Father, I pray that you would break that down. I pray that you would make us full, submissive servants of yours. And Jesus, I pray that your kingdom would spread here in this church, that your kingdom would spread through this church, that people would see uh, and, and get a glimpse of and taste what it's like when God lives among human beings again. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for sending our Jesus. And Father, we, again, we look forward to his second coming. And we pray, uh, as saints have prayed throughout the ages, Lord, would you come quickly? I pray all this in your name. Amen.